with Amy. She had just the right amount of rocks today. And we get ready to do a sacrament that also tells us about God's attitude toward us. We do baptism in public worship because what is expressed to the child is also expressed to us. We have no trouble believing that for a child. We have trouble believing that about ourselves. So in this sacrament, hear God's words as not just being for this child, but for every one of us here. I'm going to ask for Jane and Stacy and all their families and friends to join us for this special sacrament. gives us the first account in our Gospels of the Easter event. But it is an account that sounds very close to the kind of Easter you and I experience today. There is no risen Christ seen. There is simply an announcement by a young man in an empty tomb that what you thought was certain is not. And that if you risk trusting this message, then everything gets turned upside down. Mark tells this first group who heard this message, and they didn't know what to do with it. Will we? And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll the stone for us away from the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone was rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. And they were amazed. And he said to them, Do not be amazed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had come upon them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay, it's test time. How many of y'all have noticed that my beard is gone? How many didn't notice there we go. Now, every winter when I was in the mountains, I'd grow my beard. And I would shave it on Easter Saturday 
So I show up on Easter morning because St. Paul said that Christ makes all things new. And I would show up, and if I wouldn't tell them, it would be amazing the kind of comments you'd get. Someone would come up to me and say, well, you know, you look like you've lost weight, which I kind of liked. Or they'd come up and ask, well, now, are, are you sick? Because my face would often be so white, which I didn't like. People would know something was different. They just weren't sure what was different. Easter is about knowing something is different. But are we sure what? Now, the big Easter news this week has been the discovery of the Gospel of Judas. Now, how many of y'all watched the National Geographic special last Sunday night or the umpteen shows this week on it? Yeah, this newly discovered gospel asserts that Judas is not the bad guy that the church has always said he was. Instead, Judas is the good guy. He's the one who best understood Jesus and did what Jesus wanted. Is there any truth there? I don't know. I do like what I heard on the show when they shared that a group of Jesuits are trying to get Judas canonized as a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. All I can say is if they make Judas a saint, there is hope for you and me. Now there is an Easter message. The reason that Judas obeyed Jesus, according to this gospel, was that Jesus wanted to escape from this body of flesh to become pure spirit. Now, I think I would have picked an easier means to escape the body than death by crucifixion, wouldn't you? And if I was Jesus' best friend, I'd have told Jesus we need to talk. When I heard this rationale, I had my first clue as to why this gospel didn't make the cut on getting included in the canon of Scripture. The Gospel of Judas expresses Gnostic theology. And Gnosticism was a movement in the early church where they believed the earth was under the control of an evil lesser God. They believed flesh and the body was evil. And the goal of life was to get out of the body to spirit where the true God was. The Christian Century quoted an article from Harper's Magazine that says Gnostic thought is still alive and well among us. The article said this, one of the reasons the line, I'm very spiritual, but I'm not very religious at all, is so common according to Garrett Kaiser, is that religion is hard work, while spirituality is lighter on its feet, writes Kaiser. Religion is potluck suppers for Christ. Like spirituality without religion or modern Gnostics who claim to have a special knowledge of the divine. Their ultimate goal is emancipation from this vile world of matter and their deepest spiritual need is to be delivered from the body, including the body politic. 
But what one out the church long ago said is that there are not two gods, one evil and one good. There's just God. And we believe this God created all this earth and God declared it all good. This means our bodies are likewise good. Flesh is good. What we do on earth can be good. No, God is not trying to get us out of the world. God is trying to get us into the world. For isn't that what we claim God did in Jesus? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. God is out to transform the world. Is out to make Judases into saints. This is the view that won out. Did you know that the Apostles' Creed that we say today was to develop to refute Gnostic theology? Did you know that? The Creed says Jesus was born into flesh. We get hung up on virgin birth, but even that was a statement about flesh. In the first century, they thought that all great people were virgin born. Julius Caesar was virgin born, they said. Augustus Caesar was virgin born, they said. The scandal was saying that someone born from peasant stock could be virgin born. For everyone knew that peasant stock wasn't as important as noble flesh. But the church says that this Jesus was virgin born, which was another way of asserting God's declaration that all flesh is good. The creed says Jesus died just like you and I will die. The creed says the resurrection wasn't some spiritual event, but a bodily resurrection, which is saying that the Jesus known in the flesh is the same Jesus recognized in the resurrection. What does all this gospel of Judas have to do with you and me in the year 2006? besides being a nice headline to titillate us during Holy Week, I think many of us are Gnostic when it comes to Easter and the resurrection. We make resurrection spiritual and forget the flesh. We forget the centerpiece of our faith as simply a guarantee of life after death. Then we go back to living on Monday, go back to living in the world of the flesh, with Jesus' resurrection having no impact on our flesh. This is why I love Mark's story of Easter. Did you catch Mark's ending? So they went out and fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. If you did a literal translation from the Greek into the English, the reading of Mark's ending sounds like Yoda speaking in Star Wars. It goes like this. To no one anything they said, afraid they were for. It sounds as if Mark got dragged off in mid-sentence. Now scholars tell us that the, they lost the last page of the gospel. And the church couldn't stand that. So later they put some later endings on, including that wonderful part that I love about handling snakes. But maybe, just maybe, Mark ends like Mark wanted it to. 
The late Donald H. Jewell tells the story of one of his students who memorized the whole of Mark to do a dramatic Broadway-style reading before a live audience. At the first performance after he spoke that ambiguous last verse, he stood there awkwardly, shifting from one foot to the other, with the audience waiting for him to bring some closure, bring a proper ending. And finally, after several anxious seconds, he said, I'm in, and made his exit. And the audience applauded loudly and appreciatively. We like things nice and neat, don't we? Don't give us ambiguity. Give us black and white. Give us certainty. We'll go to war if you make things black and white. But if you make things gray, well, we just get stuck. Upon reflection, though, the student realized that providing the audience with a satisfying conclusion, the amen had actually betrayed the dramatic intention of the text. So at the next performance, when he reached the final verse, he simply paused for a half beat and left the stage in silence. The discomfort and uncertainty within the audience were obvious. And when people exited, the buzz of conversation was dominated by the experience of a non-ending. He got more out of a dangling ending than a nice closed one. Mark got more out of a dangling gospel. Mark's open ending messes up all our other fixed images of, G of Easter. Easter's supposed to have Jesus show up, joyful seaside meals, scenes of reconciliation and forgiveness, garden embraces with the Lord. Mark doesn't have any of that. Jesus doesn't even show up in Mark's Easter. Is that any way to run a resurrection? Maybe that is exactly what Mark's trying to tell us that Easter is supposed to do. Shake us up, make us uncomfortable. But when you think about it, Mark's Easter is exactly the kind of Easter that you and I get. The women go to the tomb, worried about the big obstacle in their way, that stone. Some of you come here this morning aware of those kind of obstacles, of stones in your life that you don't see how in the world you're going to get moved. I think the worst thing about our time is feeling that we can't do much about anything, that we are powerless over much that we face. The result is our time is a pretty nihilistic time which can shut us up and make us silent in the face of what looks immovable. But Mark says, you think you got problems with immovable stones? That's nothing. Let me give you a real problem. And then he tells us we don't have everything figured out. He throws some gray into our black and white world. What the women expect when they get there isn't there. The stone's gone. The tomb's empty. And there is a young man dressed in a white robe. It doesn't say angel. It says, young guy in a white robe. Okay, you got the white robe today. You don't get the young guy, but you get the white robe. You may get a young woman, 
The young man tells them that what you're looking for isn't here. You're looking in the wrong place. You won't find Jesus here in this cemetery. Cemeteries are about certainty. After all, what is more certain than death? And certainty is what a lot of us come for today. Give us certainty. I can't give it to you. What you get is faith, not certainty. What you get is a promise is that the living Lord is out there ahead of you. What you get is a story that says life isn't about certainty. Life is about knowing who you can trust and what you can trust in the midst of uncertainty. Can you trust this story in your flesh? Most surprising of all is where Mark says we'll find Jesus. Mark says we'll find him in Galilee. You know where Galilee is? It's nowhere special. The claim here is that Easter has to do with the ordinary. Jesus is raised into our world where everything that lives dies. This is a world where death seems so powerful. Those of you who have gone through grief can testify that your grief can be the most intense in the ordinary little things in life. I was cleaning out my desk at home last week, and I found Dad's glasses stuck in the back of a drawer. Dad has been dead since 1993, but the tears appeared as if it was yesterday. It's in the ordinary little ways that you miss them the most. This is the world, Mark says, Jesus enters back into to transform. And folks, that news is scary as hell. If Jesus had been defeated, then what we believe about the world is true. Evil is powerful, and though there are bursts of goodness, it doesn't matter, because it all ends in death anyway. So who cares? Keep a stiff upper lip. Eat and drink and be merry, because you know how life is. Life is terminal. But if Jesus is raised, well, there's something to be feared. It means everything is turned upside down and nothing is certain again. Nothing is secure and fixed. If the story is true, it means you should not walk out of here the same as you came in. And Mark says where you're going to find this Jesus is not in here. It is out there. That is Mark's version of Easter. And folks, that's a lot more scary than the Gospel of Judas. Mark ends with the women's not telling anyone. They ran away from Easter scared. What about us? Will we tell? What are you going to do with such a story? Well, not to be ugly, but to be honest, that's not my problem. That's your problem. After all, you're the ones who came here today looking for Jesus, didn't you? All I can tell you is he isn't here. You just missed him. By this time, he's already out there in the ordinary world waiting for you to catch up to him. Will you risk finding him in the flesh? For it is the flesh that Jesus wants to change. 
you know, maybe the Jesuits are right in trying to canonize old Judas. Because if Judas can be a saint, can't you be one? Can't I? Amen. With what you've heard said and the way the Spirit has touched you, let us go to God in prayer. Lord God, we confess that we, like those women of long ago, don't know what to do with this story. We too come today sure of what we'll find, longing for a certainty that will keep us comfortable in how we see the world. And then to our closed view of the world, you throw a monkey wrench in Jesus and ask us to view the world as open-ended and not shut. We would like to get out of the world, away from problems, to be content in our own little world. But you throw us back into the world, declaring that all flesh is good and can be transformed. Thus, we're not to condemn and claim it as worthy what you claim is good and possible, even those we would declare Judases. Lord, help us to leave this sanctuary more hopeful than we came in. Help us to not try and escape the world and all its complexities and troubles, but instead help us to enter more into the world, trusting that you can use even our feeble efforts to bear witnesses to your love. So, Lord, hear our prayers for a new world where the war in Iraq will end, for where those on the bottom of society can live out their hopes for a better life where those on the top learn how to give themselves away rather than hoard, and where this great diversity of people you love are seen as blessings rather than curses. We pray in the name of Jesus, who waits for us in the world, saying the prayer he first taught us to pray, and then to live. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The line is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Now to get you ready for our closing hymn, it's on an insert in your bulletin, so you won't have to fumble. I now invite you to stand and join together in the Apostles' Creed ecumenical version. And we're going to do it the way they did it in the early church, which means y'all are to listen to the level of my voice, and if my voice goes up, y'all's voices go up. If it goes down... Y'all let it go down. Let us stand and join together in affirming our faith. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father.
and will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. <laughs>